Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Road podcast. Today, we welcome on Stuart Armstrong, the host of the Talent Equation podcast from the UK. Uh, it was a great chance to talk with Stuart today. He's kind of one of my um, coaching role models out there. And uh, he gave me a lot of ideas and, and a lot of kind of inspiration early on in my coaching career through, through his podcast and his show. So it was great to be able to connect with him and, and just have a little chat. Um, it was a little bit of a new format for us today. We did a simulcast. So this is also coming out on, on his platform. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun. It was just a free-flowing conversation. No, no um, preparation, no pre-prepared questions or anything like that. So it was, a, it was an interesting challenge. And I, I think we talked about a lot of interesting stuff. So I'm excited to share it. Yes, as you said, we talked with Stuart about a lot of different areas. And I think the main things we talked with Stuart about today is that we actually compared and contrast linear versus nonlinear training environments. And also one part of our conversation was that how do we actually create training environments with, which have features of deliberate practice, but are at the same time representativeness. And as you, I also enjoyed the conversation with Stuart a lot. He is very knowledgeable. And as you also mentioned, he is the host of the Talent Equation podcast and due to that he has been speaking with a lot of people in that field and he, he has gained a lot of different uh or he has gained a lot of knowledge and he was but at the same time he was also able to apply all these things and to try it out because he is also coaching and with the podcast he i mean he had so many different people on on his show and they provided him with so many different perspectives and i think um it was just really good for us the opportunity that we could talk to him because also one of our questions was that we uh, we asked him that what are actually all the things or what are the key takeaways from his show and from the people he has been talking to and at the same time I think that's uh, the, the answers he provides us and the insights are very 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 useful and they're also applicable because you really can see that um, he, he he has vertical knowledge but at the same time he's he's able to apply it and he can talk about everything in depth and uh, we hope that everyone will enjoy the episode with Stuart as much as we did so we'd like to welcome on Stuart Armstrong from the Town Equation podcast based out of the UK. Uh, Stuart, I've been a, a big fan of yours for a, a long time, so thanks for joining us. And, and how's everything going back in the UK? Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. And um, uh, I still always have to raise a slight smile when people say they're fans of the podcast, because there's still a part of me that is amazed that anybody wants to listen to these, this, this stuff. But, um, but I always rationalize it by saying that it, the podcast is only as good as its guests so i'm very thankful to all the people who come on and thank me for well thank you for inviting me on to come and chat to you guys um with with the uh, you know the kind of project um uh yeah we're okay over here so far um we're 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 getting there in the end i think hopefully uh we're in our third lockdown um but um i think everybody's pretty hopeful that with uh, things improving and uh, that we'll all be back doing some some sport so um, I'm at the moment talking about coaching a lot as opposed to doing much albeit uh, doing my little best my best on video to share some stuff with the kids uh, and little challenges and things like that um, 
And I think lots of coaches are doing that. You know, we're trying to just keep kids active and you know not lose not lose contact, which is which is good. And it's been but it's been a good time for coaches to take stock and learn. And there's never been more content out there. Um, you know, lots of people have kind of I think worked out worked out. Oh yeah, digital. We can we can do really meaningful learning experiences via digital. And uh, yeah, so it's been uh, it's been an interesting time. Um, and um, and I think it's going to be good for coaches to be able to move forward with with this richer learning environment for them. Well, yeah. actually, that's exactly the reason why we have been starting the show. It's a huge, huge intrinsic motivation for us. I think we just took the initiative during the summer because there was so much time available and overall just wondering that how is the vaccination process going at the moment in the UK? Well, um, actually, that is probably the one area where we have to be very um, uh, positive towards the way the government's operated. They're rolling it out really, really rapidly. Um, and so, we're yeah, we're very positive about that. I think uh, some people have raised some concerns about the way we dealt with the early stages of the, of the pandemic. But I think um, having finally got to the point where we could, I think, uh, yeah, rolling it out fast has been a been a positive thing. So very much, again, like I said earlier, looking forward to young people being able to go back to school, join sports clubs. Uh, and the government have actually said that they're very keen to get people back to physical activity as quickly as possible again, which is a good thing to hear. Yeah, it's it's interesting the the stuff that's coming out about the impacts of the lack of kind of physical activity and stuff like this during this period, and then actually kind of turning that around and, and seeing how important physical activity and just being active is, is on the health and, and everything of just society. But, you know, there's a lot of things that I want to uh, explore with you today, but I, I guess I've always been curious about kind of how you got your start just in coaching and um, how did you get to the, the podcast and, and what you're doing now with kind of coach education and stuff like that? Like, how did you just get interested in that and how did you get your start? Um. It's it's um it's an interesting thing for me when I reflect on this. I don't quite know why, but what I do know, what I can tell you is, um, when I got really interested in sport as a child, so I was born with a disability, so I had a kind of um, an impairment. I was born with um, a condition called talipes, which is commonly known as club foot, which meant I had an operation done when I was really young, and they had me in casts for an extended period of time. And it, it did leave me with um, uh, some limitations uh, physically. So I've always just played able-bodied sport. You know, I had corrective surgery and then just played sport as an able-bodied individual. But in reality, I do have some physical limitations. In particular, my level of um, speed and athleticism has never been probably what it could have been. Um, and as a result of that, I, throughout my kind of sporting life, having played able-bodied, played, you know, pretty much every sport under the sun. Um, but one of the things that I did, I suppose, and I don't know whether this was conscious, or in fact, I know it wasn't conscious. It was just, just my nature, I guess, but it might have been linked to the fact that I had this impairment. Um, I was always very, very analytical about every activity I got involved with. I always wanted to know how to play and also how to get better at it. You know, I self-taught in loads of different sports, um, but I always was like hungry for knowledge and learning about the activity and like what the tactics were and how you gained an advantage and things like that. And so when I found uh, the game of field hockey, which I found relatively late, I was about 14. We, we actually won a gold medal, lo and behold, at the Seoul Olympics in 88. And I, um, 
uh, I then picked up the game and never looked back. You know, just thought this is this is the game for me. I'd never even heard of it before then, like a lot of people. Um, and um, uh, and again, you know, you're playing with a physical limitation, so you know, I pretty much quit worked out. I'm not as fast as other people, so my adaptation was to be uh, very very aware of my surroundings continuously. Um, that gave me an advantage because I could constantly be one step ahead of the people. I knew where my next movement was. I knew where my next pass was. And I found that really kind of gave me an advantage. It got me to the point where I, you know, I was able to play some junior representative stuff um, in Wales where I grew up. Um, and then because of that as well, you know, I found myself sort of taking natural sort of leadership roles. So I would, you know, often be coordinating activity or guiding players around me or saying, look, 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 see what they're doing over there. Let's close that down by moving like this together. So I was always in this kind of semi-leadership role. Um, and so obviously that makes you pretty analytical pretty quickly because there's a number of ways you can mask your, your physical deficiencies. You know, you think quicker than the other people are get you're against and you get your own teammates to do all your running for you. So that's that was a kind of an obvious thing for me. And then when I went to university and I started to study sports science and we have pedagogy modules, you start to do coaching there as well. And that's kind of where I think I found my feet. And I realized pretty quickly that I was probably going to become a better coach than I could ever be a player. So that sort of started the journey. And from that moment on, if I'm honest, I started to probably focus more on learning to coach than I did on learning to, on, on becoming a better player. Um, albeit had a decent-ish career as a player, but you know, never never as much as I was ever going to do as a, as a, as a coach. And then like most people, you know, I always had a big dream of becoming like, you know, the national coach like we all do and these sorts of things. Um, but I think I pretty much realized that I kind of wanted to be coaching to be a part of my life, not my whole life. And also I, because of the work I was also doing, you know, where I was working in quite a few governing bodies, developing coaches, developing talent systems, developing potential opportunity, you know, and all those sorts of things and very much studying talent development, coaching and all those sorts of things. But I realized quickly that my genuine passion and fascination was, was with developing athletes and helping young people on their sort of journey of potential. And so as I started to learn more about that, I started to share more about that. And that formed a blog, an early stage blog. Um, and then that became a bit more of a blog. Then the podcast started and then here we are. Um, so, yeah, my entire career really uh, sort of had a, I've been very fortunate to work in sport, sport all my life. Um, and uh, my whole career has just been, you know, learning and studying and, discovering things and meeting people who've got amazing insights and knowledge. Um, and so, uh, you know, I've been able to take that into my coaching and bring more of that into my coaching. And now I guess I do as much of that in my work around coach education and coach development systems. And uh, also through the stuff I do kind of outside of my day job with the talent equation It's always just trying to help other people to be able to somehow navigate this crazy complex world we call coaching. Well, yeah, I just mentioned here that throughout your podcasting time, you met a lot of people, a lot of people from the coaching world, a lot of people who gained experience. And you also said that this has helped you to acquire more knowledge and to get to also acquire more expertise and to become to become just a better coach, to develop more. And you also said that you studied the field of coaching a lot. And my question for me is that what have you been taking all away from the studies and from the people you met about coaching what kind of what kind of lessons have you learned from them 
uh, from co about coaching and how how do you think can we apply these in our in our daily work as coaches? Um, well, you know, anybody who listens to the show knows that um, I've obviously got quite diverse interests, um, and I've got I'm I'm just generally quite interested and curious about people's journeys and you know kind of where they get their motivations and some of their ideas and you know and I was always very keen as well to learn from different sports because I believe that you know there's, there's a lot of transferability but lots of us as coaches as generally you know we only tend to operate within our own realm or our own domain and we hear ideas about our own context but actually there's lots to learn you know so field hockey can learn a lot from ice hockey ice hockey can learn a lot from field hockey um, I've learned defensive concepts from ultimate Frisbee, you know, and there's all these transferable ideas. So that's the first thing. The other thing that I think I would take away from the conversations I've had is uh, how generous people are with their um, knowledge and how prepared they are to share their experiences and their lived experiences and how powerful they are. One of the things I think that's useful about podcasting and establishing converse, uh, uh, conversation, and I very, very deliberately from the outset. So some podcasts have quite a, a clear outline of the kind of format that they're going to use and the question process. And it's a questioning approach, which is, you know, the right way sometimes. But I was very keen for, for two reasons, really. But I was very keen that with, with mine that I wanted to make it much more of a conversation. And so it's very much, I describe it as an emergent conversation between practitioners. I have no idea where the conversation is going to go before the start of the com before the start. And people often say to me, do you have a list of questions to send me ahead of time? And I'm like, no, I'd rather we have a conversation and just see where it goes as if we were meeting over coffee. Like, and I know so many coaches who learn so much by just meeting somebody else over coffee and having a conversation. So the idea was, it was like listening into two coaches getting together to have a conversation over coffee. Um, uh, the other reason I like that as well is I, I, I in, you know, I, I like the fact that it's emergent in the same way that, you know, a lot of the principles I talk about, you know, are, are around the idea of, you know, skill being an emergent property. So I like to see which avenues that we will we will travel down. And I like to explore with individuals and be very much responsive to the information that they give me and then probe further on things that they might share and all those sorts of things. But what I'm really interested in is, is quite how, how prepared people are to do that and how prepared they are to engage and actually sometimes to be vulnerable enough to just explore with me because I'll sometimes ask a question, which is something they may not have considered before. So they're not prepared for it. Um, and so they're having to kind of work through some of these ideas with me. And I've had some very interesting experiences with coaches who I've, you know, kind of probed or asked something different or whatever it is. And you can see that we're now both working on a problem together, kind of live and in the moment, which is kind of interesting. Um, but so firstly is the willingness to share and the willingness to be vulnerable. And the other thing I think that's useful or hopefully I hope comes across as well is quite a lot of coach education type stuff is tends to be knowledge about coaching. And what I like to think that the podcasting format provides is knowledge of coaching or knowledge in coaching, um, because what you're getting is you're getting insights from somebody's lived experience. Now, there are certain members of the academic community who would probably say, well, that's not real, that's not high quality, it's not peer-reviewed, it's not this, that, and the other. And I would say, no, 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 we'll get all our knowledge about coaching from you academics who've gone through the process and peer review process, et cetera, et cetera, and you'll have your papers and your articles. What you're going to get from a podcast is you're going to get knowledge of and knowledge in, because what you're then going is you're saying, this is how people are interpreting this information and applying it to their context. 
this is how they're taking these ideas and trialing and erroring them and using them and sharing those kinds of experiences. And so you're going to get a different perspective than you would get from the academic the academic space. Um, and so that's kind of what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to share. I mean, there's lots of highlights along the way. I, and I, I'm always reluctant to pick them out because I don't really want to leave anybody out because everybody I've taken away so much from. Um, but that one about being prepared to share, prepared to be vulnerable, um, prepared to go wherever the energy takes us. Um, and then the insights that that gleans, I just see such value in that process of, of kind of going on a discovery together. And I'm trying to keep it um, as aligned to the principles of, you know, the kind of emergent ecological approach as I possibly can, because otherwise it would be a bit incongruent for me to be super formulaic. Plus, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm um, very rarely got enough time to be able to prepare a list of questions anyway. So it just suits me to be much more kind of um, organic with the discussion topics. Hopefully that answers the question, Rick, but that's broadly speaking where what's many of the insights that I've, I've driven from the process. Well, I find that really interesting because Rick and I so far in our podcast have had that, that very structured kind of send a list of questions beforehand and, and pick out a theme and everything. And then, you know, we're, we're starting to get a little bit more natural and um, a little bit more go with the flow of the, the conversation. So it's, it's interesting to, because um, now we're taking your approach today and we didn't prepare at all and we're, we're having this kind of a emergent conversation. So it, it's going to be interesting. I've, I've really enjoyed your sharing so far. So um, I, I want to dive into to something there because I think a, a big theme on your show, which you just mentioned, is this um, ecological approach. And, and I think what ties into that a lot is kind of nonlinear pedagogy and, and the constraints-led approach. And I have to I have to say one of my favorite things about our program here at Beer Mackey is we, we have those discussions every day. You know, we, we live all, most of us live on campus. So after class, we'll, we'll go and sit around the coffee table and, and have those discussions about what we just learned in theory and, and how are we going to apply it? And, you know, what are some of the experiences we've had? And Rick and I are kind of in this little, uh, I'll call it a book club for now, studying um, NLP and CLA principles and stuff like that. And um, well, I'm wondering how did you get your start in that area? Like what got you interested in that, in that side of kind of skill development, talent development? And, and how did you find out about that information and how did you start using that in your coaching? Um, it's a very um, emergent process. Just before I dive into that, um, um, I'd be quite interested just to get a bit of a, <clears throat> without wanting to turn the tables too much, uh, it sounds to me like you're involved in a very interesting, interesting program. So um, I'm, I'm intrigued. So tell me more about um, the, the, because it's a, I mean, you're at a university, you're studying all this stuff. You're also talking about, so yeah, tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's a, well, first of all, it's in the middle of the forest. Um, so you don't really have anywhere else to go except for campus, <laughs> um, which is a, a huge benefit, right? Like you, you, you have to have those conversations. You have to be around other coaches. Um, it's, it's mainly an ice hockey um, program. A lot of about half the classes are, are ice hockey coaches, but we have that influence from other sports and we have the input from other sports. I think in my class, we have three football coaches, um, one American football coach, a gymnastics coach, track and field coach, and um, um, figure skater slash hockey skating coach. Um, so it's, it's really broad in that way and then also broad culturally um like we have 
Yeah, I'm from the U.S. Um, we have guys from one of my classmates is from Kenya. One of my classmates is from Cyprus. We have Slovakians, um, Austrians, Rick is from Germany. And, and so it's, it's worldly and sports worldly too, if that makes sense. Um, but it's a small class, 20 of us in our, in my year and um, 24 in the new year here. Um, and it's really just all about coaching. We have classes about sports psychology, strength and conditioning, um, the new part of the curriculum is um, diving in more into the CLA and LP stuff and skill development, um, athlete pathways. I, I can name a bunch of different topics. And then you, you coach alongside that. So you're, you're actively being able to put your ideas into practice with um, Rick and I coach together on, a, on an under 13, under 14 um, ice hockey team here at the local club. And so it's, it's really cool. You get to have the in-class theory um, pop, uh, discussions about that theory. And then you go home, you have a cup of coffee, you talk about how you're going to use it. And then you go to practice and you use it. Um, and then you, I, I always come home and my roommate and I get home from practice around the same time. And we spend an hour um, having dinner and, and just talking about how practice went and what we did and how the things we were trying to implement went and everything like that. So it's really interesting in that sense, but it is 24 seven coaching 24 seven getting better and sharing your ideas and getting ideas from other. Um, I'm making it sound pretty awesome right now. I know, but um, it, it is. Um, I'm, I'm very but, lucky to be here, but um, I'm very, is, um, I'm, I'm extremely jealous um, because it does sound pretty damn awesome. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I don't know, Rick, did, did I leave anything out important there? Or? Well, no, the only thing what I would maybe add, because you mentioned all the important things here, but my maybe one thing to add is that just came to my mind that something what makes the program very special for coach education, that it's not just that you're sitting all day long in the classroom, it's also very practical orientated. So we have, you have four clinics during the week. So we have physical clinics and you have um, either sports-specific clinics. So in this case, it's ice hockey or you have a you have um, non-ice non, non hockey clinic. And then, for example, the way how the hockey clinics work, so student gets a gets a topic assigned or he can choose a topic um, or she can choose a topic. And then the student is going to run the clinic with someone else. And then uh, we have a few discussions on the ice about, about the content and about the activities. And afterwards, the, after the clinics, the student have to reflect on their on their actions on their coaching behaviors and what 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 they would consider to do different the next time and then also then uh, we have a have an open discussion with, with all the students and then we still have some teachers input and the other thing i would like to add still is that it's overall it's a very holistic uh, coach education program before i moved here i've never been really uh, been in contact with coach education and how coaching works so it's a uh, it's a very interesting journey and then um, I'm very happy that I could make this experience. And as I said, it's a very holistic program because the first two years of our studies are in intensive period here in Viromeki. And then the third year, uh, the students have the opportunity to do a work placement or an internship in other words, wherever they would like to, wherever they would like to. And there they can actually implement all the things they have been acquiring during the two years time of intensive studying in Viromeki in their internship. And um, at the same time, um, they have the opportunity to 
to work on their on their bachelor's thesis um, so to, to graduate so that's 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 a process um, it's and as I said it's a very holistic program very growth orientated and the most important what's most most emphasized is per, uh, growth on a personal and professional level so the human side is the most emphasized program here and how that mirrors also is that from day one um, the teachers and everyone else around the program is emphasizing values and the importance of it and that we should act and live according to them as much as possible yeah i mean it it does sound i mean i have to say i mean um it sounds to me like you're getting in you know what would be a relatively compressed period of time over what is it whatever it is you know a year two years whatever uh you're getting a lifetime <laughs> mm, of, yeah. of learning because you know for, for the vast majority of, of individuals who sort of you know go down a volunteering type of pathway you know you start out and you're you're learning you know you might do your level one course and then you go out and you do a load of trial and error and then you do your level two maybe a few years later and then you get and then a bit later on you might progress to another thing like that uh, but you don't really get that um, you don't get the feedback you don't get the opportunity to have those reflective conversations with either a peer or a group of peers or uh, a supervisor who can kind of maybe point you in different directions of things that you may or may not have spotted for yourself. Mm. Um, so, I mean, and, and the fact that you've also got that beautiful blend by the sounds of things anyway, of the sort of formal, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the kind of the theoretical side, also the, the, the formal stuff that might be done even in a practical sense, but at the same time, you've then also got the, the social learning spaces wrapped around that where mm -hmm. you're either having informal conversations about your experience, your lived experiences and sharing those and whether you're doing those in a formal setting as in a, a classroom setting, or you're doing it outside just like you're doing now and all those sorts of things. So, it's, I mean, that's like a, to me, that's what I'm trying to, in my day-to-day -day work, working with different sports federations, I'm encouraging them to uh, build programs like that uh, obviously at scale it's very mm. difficult to do at scale but trying to get them to build more programs like that so that coaches aren't just given the kind of formal education and then off you go into your environments and you're sort of left to your own devices mm. much yeah. much more about creating a, a broader and rounder more kind of holistic human-led again you know yeah. um uh program um but again trying to do it at scale yeah. and i think digital digital has a role as far as that's concerned yeah. um I'm conscious, though, that I, you asked me a question and I need, I need to answer it, which is um, how I kind of learn about things like CLA and all that sort of stuff. Um, so the honest answer is by accident, or depending on how you look at it, it could be by design. Um, I got, <clears throat> when I was growing up, I told you earlier, I'm doing lots of different sports. Um, I always found in my search for, so I was like a bit of quite a religious practicer. Um, so, you know, I played a lot of cricket um, uh, or I, I would quite often be, you know, out on the hockey field with a friend of mine and we'd be just like practicing and training against each other. But I was never very excited by the idea of just sort of like, you know, I would very rarely would you see me just practicing on my own. Um, I wouldn't find a great deal of enjoyment in that. You wouldn't really see me going out there and doing that. So what I would generally do is find a partner and we'd, we'd create some sort of challenge or activity. Um, and we would just play, you know. And um, I remember distinctly, like field hockey-wise, like 
my best friend was a defender, I was an attacker, and we just used to go, right? And he just used to love trying to take the ball off me. I used to love trying to tackle him. And we just keep going and going and going and going. And so much so, in fact, that I got um, my uh, art teacher came out and caught me on the field when I should have been in his class at probably about the 10th time and said, maybe you should have a career in sport instead of doing graphic design like you want to do, which turned out to be very good career advice. Um, so that was, and, and also when I was doing cricket, you know, I used to design games all the time, all the time based on designing games or making practice more challenging. So I was always adding variability. You know, I would put, I'd play, I'd put extra stumps in, I'd put coins on the stump so that my brother would continue to bowl at me because he's two years younger and he used to get bored. So I'd, I'd let him bowl from closer and I'd try and motivate him. But, and I'd also bat with a, a really thin bat or a stump so that it, I had less surface area to play with because I thought you know this is a more challenging way for me to get better and this is before I knew anything about this I'm 14 I've got no idea about CLA but I'm doing CLA um, and then my brother and I would always get together and we'd go we'd create games we'd just create games to go and play so if we were playing outside we would always create a game make it better make it harder add layers into it so that was a very natural thing but my coach education experience taught me taught me none of that in actual fact it taught me the absolute opposite of that it taught me very technique-led, taught me about teaching technique. Um, it taught me about isolated practice in order to learn technique and then apply it into, into context. And so uh, that, was, that was my model then. So then I go away with this model that I've been educated in and I try that and it doesn't feel right. Um, none of it felt right, but I, that was what I knew, right? So you do it, doing it the right way. But then obviously being you know, curious and also constantly on the search and look out for something i did i heard about a concept um one of the really great olympic hockey field hockey coaches who won serial gold medals with the australian men and women team a guy called rick charlesworth he talked a lot about designer games at a book he wrote after they won their first gold and he called designer games and i was like that's interesting i like the idea of designer games uh, and then I a bit more searching around and I discovered teaching games for understanding Thorpe and Bunker. And I was very, very privileged to meet Rod Thorpe. I've met him a few, on a few occasions. You know, he's a bit of a kind of coaching hero of mine. Um, and, um, and so I started to play around with that concept of a, of a game, you know, a game-based approach and a designer game, but did it very clumsily. So I was kind of blending technique-led con cognitive approaches uh, with a kind of games-based approach, trying to map it on the top, and it clunky, yeah, and it didn't quite work. So I'd, you know, spend some of the time in the session traditionally you know, doing the traditional isolated movement pattern stuff and maybe coordination patterns, you move here, you move here, like cones everywhere, you've got to follow the cones. And then it'd be like, right, now we're going to have a game-based approach, and it's like, <laughs> it didn't quite work, but I didn't know why. So I went through that whole process, and then through being very fortunate of like working in the sport in the in the industry and meeting different people and different practitioners um i discovered more kind of experiential models and started to discover that and i kind of found that quite interesting and um so mark bennett who was one of the early guys on the podcast who's been a long-term mentor of mine really opened my eyes to experiential approaches and like non-directive approaches drawing out from an individual then their capability rather than trying to put it in that was like revelatory and again now I'm, now I'm really curious and then I met Rick Shuttleworth 
um, who exposed me to ask me some difficult questions that I didn't have any answers for, exposed me to the, the notion of CLA and, and also some different ideas. And then some other people like Russell Earnshaw, who were very naturally involved in this. And there was a big movement at the time when I was working in rugby around this. So I got very fortunate meeting those. And then that leads to another, you know, various other people that you meet. And I guess that's what really brought me where I am, um, is just that sort of almost like semi-curiosity, which I suppose, you know, I guess you could say it wasn't entirely accidental that I discovered this because I already kind of had it baked into the DNA from the outset. But what I found when I discovered the ecological approach and CLA, nonlinear pedagogy, was I found something that felt natural for me. I felt it really, it was a good fit. Up to that point, I felt a lot of what I was doing was very incongruent. It didn't, didn't really map onto my being particularly well. It felt mechanized and clunky and uh, I didn't I didn't derive a lot of joy from it at all I didn't derive very much you know I, fa I found the process of coaching to be quite um you know kind of uh con full of conflict um and, and very challenging sometimes and I didn't always have the answers for those challenges and I didn't understand them really and I now realize that in reality a lot of it was because of what I was doing was so incongruous but also some of it was a bit dehumanizing, you know, I was asking people to essentially, you know, kind of rid themselves of their natural capabilities and beings in the search of something else. Now, sometimes that's a, that's, that's what's required, but I was doing it too much. And, um, and part of that was because everything I was doing was so reductionist in its, in its approach, you know, it was about, we're going to be more organized and more structured and we're going to repeat, 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 repeat until we get it right. And then, and then we'll move beyond that. And then we could, and it was almost like, you know, you could just see people just sort of like losing the will to live sort of thing. And that was like me, I did that. Um, and then it didn't work, of course. And I'd scream and shout and all sort of those behaviors. And really all those sort of horrible negative behaviors just stemmed from the fact that I just didn't have the answer. And when I discovered ecological approach, I felt like, oh yeah, see, where have you been all my life? Basically what, what I'd kind of believed or had was, I knew was sort of central to my core uh, all of a sudden there's a whole kind of scientific community saying you know what there's an alternative and it's really quite interesting and I'm like well, now I don't have to compromise anymore now I don't have to make that sacrifice and say you need to do this in order to do that even though it feels horrible and it's not very enjoyable it's just necessary I didn't have to make that compromise anymore I had something that I could say you know what we can have a load of fun doing this and it's actually going to be potentially better for you certainly in the long term and possibly even in the short term so sorry very long-winded answer to your question uh but yeah that's that's definitely the journey no it, it's a, a good answer and, and i have to um throw my my little fan hat back on here for a second but you know i mentioned to you before we started this like uh, i i your podcast really gave me a lot of ideas as a young coach and um i mentioned the the club i in the club I was in um, back in the States was, was doing things fairly traditional, um, fairly um, kind of, you know, using a lot of tones going around them and, and everything like that. And, and I think hockey, ice hockey is, is one of the, it's a very fluid sport. Right. And, and, and for me, cones don't have a whole lot of, of purpose, um, partly from listening to your podcast early on in my career. But um, the, the point I'm making here is that, well, actually, I have a quick story. I, I was at a practice right after I, I listened to one of your episodes going to practice. And I got on the ice and I saw about 100 cones. 
laid out and and we started going around them and and I went over to the the boards and stood at the side and and I was really just upset and I was visibly upset and and um and one of my one of my good friends when I was coaching there came up to me and said hey like knock it off like you've got to be you know you you've got to be positive you got to go up to the kids and then have a good time because if you're not having a good time then they're really not going to have a good time and, and everything like that and and that had a big influence on me because it it really taught me as a young coach, you don't necessarily have to be agreeing with, with what's going on on the ice or anything like that, but you, you have to think about who it's actually for and it's not for you, it's for the kids. But my point to that story is like, do you have any advice to, to young coaches out there that are kind of struggling in that same situation where, you know, they may be finding this new information for themselves, the, the ecological dynamics, NLP, CLA, everything like that. Do you have any guidance or advice for them in dealing with, with the, the traditional way and kind of, I don't want to say like picking a fight with, with the old school, but kind of, I don't know, almost kind of picking a fight with the old school kind of way. Um, I don't know if I'm making any sense with that, with that question, but um Hopefully I am. No, it's a it's a good question, and 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 sadly, I don't think I have a I don't think I have a, a particularly good answer for it. Um, uh, uh, I mean, a lot of it will will uh, be dependent on their context and who they're yeah. with and all that sort of stuff. Um, the one thing I've learned, and actually relatively recently learned this, um, I, I, in in my enthusiasm. Um, uh, to share this uh, approach with others. Um, and I've got a number of reasons for having that enthusiasm, but one of the main reasons that I've got that enthusiasm is because I genuinely believe that there is something here that could be the answer to the increasing levels of inactivity, rising obesity, because mm. in my opinion, you know, children are no longer looking at organized sport because it's not appealing to them. It, it, it probably just feels like school. Mm. You know, it's like another version of school. And like, why, who wants to voluntarily do that, right? So we see dropout rates because what kids get taken to this stuff by their parents, yeah, you're going to go, you're going to go. And then eventually they say, I don't want to go anymore. Why? It's just not, it's not fun. Um, and I believe that if we can share these ideas with more people, we can actually create really dynamic and engaging and fantastically fun environments that are also really rich in learning possibilities you know and actually genuinely tap into young people's natural desire to solve problems and to be creative and to have agency and to you know have the right to be heard and all those sorts of principles you know that, that you don't have to trade those things off you know in my opinion the ecological approach affords coaches the opportunity to be part of a learning experience and they and, and to individualize and differentiate and to enable young people to really be part of a learning experience. I believe that more traditional approaches subjugate the individual towards a, 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 para, a learning or training paradigm that requires them to do things that they may not willingly wish to do. And and I think and so some people will say, well, you have no proof that the ecological approach works. Well, I'll tell you my proof. My proof is I've got 30 kids this week. I've got 30 kids the week after. I've got 30 kids a year later, and maybe I'm not. And here we go. Now we've got 40. Now we've got 50, right? That's my, okay, anecdotal. I don't care, right? It's working. We've got kids involved. They're enjoying it. You know what? 
they're getting quite good too as a matter of interest. Um, so I will continue to sort of push on that agenda. Um, and, and in my enthusiasm for doing so, uh, I have on occasion perhaps um, been overzealous in some of the things that I might push and say. War on drills is a good example, right? And, oof, God, that still gets pushed back to this day. Um, and, I, and there's a lot of people out there, uh, including a few from your world, who um, would, if I let them, uh, be stalking me and trolling me on Twitter and telling me how wrong I was and how misguided and how ridiculous it all was. Because there's a lot of people with a lot of, for whatever reason, they're either very emotionally connected to particular approaches. Uh, there's a lot of people who feel it's completely wrong to be told they can't, that they shouldn't. Um, um, I I still don't understand the rationale. I'm perfectly, I keep, keep opening the doors and say, come on, tell me, give me the rationale for it. Give me the rationale for using these kinds of inanimate objects as means by which to uh, help people develop uh, skillful performance or even to have fun. Um, I'll show you 150 different ways of doing it that gets the same outcome uh, and that are much more fun. Um, so I will, you know, I'll always go down that road. Um, and uh, so, but, but on the, on the odd occasion, I have made some statements and what I find is that the shutters come up. So whenever you're kind of a bit pushy and you try and, like kind of get a bit strong in your perspectives, then people just. So the approach that I would take is, um, and I've been talking a lot with, um, you know, kind of colleagues in this space and a number of people who've been on the show, who I regularly, you know, have a kind of community of discussion with. And, and um, I think the way to approach a, uh, ecological approaches is to um, just kind of create a safe space for people to, explore them to create a safe space to say so you know for example i would like always say um <clears throat> with this if someone's got a practice that they've designed that you're supposed to do i would always say um would you be okay uh if if i took a group that is, you, you've got a group doing this and i'm just going to do something exactly the same with the same outcome but i'm doing it a slightly different way would you be okay if i was to do that over here um and then we can maybe swap them over and then just see and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. The problem is when you're inexperienced or you're, uh, you know, you're kind of starting out or whatever it is that, you know, the more experienced individual will see you as being a bit of an upstart. You that, you know, who the hell are you to do this? So it may not work, but, um, well, then the other one is to just add in a suggestion. So you could say, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I wonder if we could add this to this practice. You think that it might be so for example you could take any drill and you add a bit of variability and all of a sudden it's a totally different practice um and so actually you know just maybe just throw an idea in you know and just uh, just to say as a you know you're you're kind of offering something as a you know as a contribution you know uh yeah you're being helpful now it might still get you into trouble because some people will find that very threatening as well particularly if they've got particularly method particular methods um so i haven't got an answer right you just have to be quite careful now, Rick Shuttleworth would say that actually you go in there and you cut people a bit, right? So you, you give them a, you present them with an alternative. Uh, it might be a stimulus, uh, uh, it might be an article, it might be a podcast, it might be something that you've seen to just give somebody some reappraisal. But I think that's much easier to do when you're coming from a position of expertise and people are actually prepared to <laughs> prepare to hear you. It's much harder to do when you're 
uh, going in there and kind of just creating a moment of reappraisal for somebody when it's somebody who you consider to be junior just comes across as arrogance. So it's difficult, and I'm not saying it's easy. But what a, the one lesson I would say is don't try and force it on anybody because all you'll get is rejection. Uh, but if you can yeah. create an affordance or you can create an opportunity for learning with an amendment or a tweak, or you add something in or you, you offer something or suggest something, um, then that's a different way of approaching it. And I find that that is a much more natural way for people to find and explore this, this model. Yeah. Now, you, now you've kind of got me thinking, cause I, I definitely did that first one where, I, or second one, I don't know which one now, but the, the arrogant one. And I, I went to these coaches that were running things and said like, Hey, like, why are we doing this? This is really stupid and, and everything like that. And, and I got that rejection and I, um, I had a few loud conversations and stuff like that. Um, but lessons learned and, and I, I grew from that. So that was a, uh, it was a, good time but um i i'm at i want to ask now because now you got me thinking like um it's almost better to take the the same approach that you would have for your athletes right like um you can't just go to your athlete and tell them like hey now you need to do this skill you don't do it another way you do it like this and and it's it's really interesting to me because um i one day hope to be a coach educator and um it's always interesting to take what we use with our athletes and, and kind of flip it and use it with, with coaches. So it's, it makes a lot of sense to me what you just said, where it's like creating that safe space for them to explore it on their own. Cause that's exactly what you do with your athletes, right. In that environment. And, um, but that, that's really interesting. And then you mentioned, um, social media, um, and, and, and I, I follow you and you have a lot of interesting discussions and, um, I, I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on that from a, a coach education perspective? Because for me, it seems like a, a really great tool um, to to kind of share ideas, have good discussions and stuff like that. But then um, you mentioned like the, the podcast being this kind of almost taking the theory and, and talking about how to use it. So do you see Twitter in the same way? And then like, how do we start using more and more of those tools to get more and more of this kind of information out there and if that makes if that's a yeah no no it's good and, and um it's an interesting space because i think i've probably i've uh, relatively recently changed my perspective on it i um I, I mean i have to say i've always found twitter to be a really really valuable tool i mean i've discovered so well firstly i've met a lot of people um uh, and I've, I've i've discovered a community interested individuals um uh it's a great place to get new information new ideas uh you discover you know articles that you never knew existed and that takes you down a rabbit hole so twitter has been a very useful learning tool for me and definitely helped me with the cla stuff i probably didn't give it enough credit earlier on um because actually what i discovered twitter once you start to put stuff out there is actually there's a load of other people who think like you too so actually like oh wow right so it's not you know, you, you get that sense of community. So, you know, you're not completely bonkers and this isn't like completely fringe and radical. Um, there's actually quite a lot of others who are exploring the same space. Um, and there's an awful lot of others who uh, desperately want to tell you that you're completely mad and you're completely wrong. Um, and that's the downside um, is that you also get that sort of negative side. And, and then, and so, even in sort of the latter part of last year, I found myself engaged in some 
pretty tense exchanges. I mean, there are some people in the social media space who I think they're trying to make, and actually, you know, academics, right? And people who know a lot who are taking it upon themselves to just basically try and discredit you because you're sharing a perspective that is contrary to their either their worldview or their business paradigm or practice approach or their research background or whatever it is. Um, and they don't want anybody else out there trying to act as an authority figure and saying that, you know, that whatever they've been selling or talking about or presenting or doing is not necessarily the way forward. So you're getting a lot of resistance. And I found myself in some very tense exchanges and I, I used to engage in them in good faith on the basis that, you know, I thought there's value in the debate, there's value in the discussion, we will learn from each other. But what I found is they just descend into, uh, you know, kind of ad hominem type personal attacks. And I found myself doing it too. And I, I wasn't very proud of some of those exchanges. Sometimes I was being a bit snidey and, you know, sending things out there, which would then explode into this gigantic, you know, and then about five days later, it's still going on. And <laughs> I just thought to myself, That's, this is no good, right? This is not helping coaches. And I, I, at one point I thought it was useful because the coaches could see the exchange of ideas and, and they could see that there's differences and back and forward and we'll find commonality. But the medium does not allow for that. It doesn't allow for that kind of discussion. It's a good medium for sharing. Um, you know, so I think of it as like digital word of mouth. Uh, it's a good medium for uh, presenting a concept or an idea uh, or whatever it is, or raising awareness of content that you might have created or whatever it is, it's not a good place for conversation. Um, and it's the nature of the, it's, it's naturally adversarial, right? Because you're, I do my bit, you do your bit, I do my bit, you do your bit. And we're trying to, you know, and there's a misinterpretation and, and then sometimes you go off on a, you know, you don't get, and you don't get the nuance. And I saw a really brilliant video the other day and it's like two dogs barking at a gate. And then the minute the gate opens, I don't know if you saw it, the minute the gate opens, they're just really nice to each other. And then the gate closes, they start barking at each other again. It's just like Twitter. Because if you met any of these people at a conference, you'd probably be quite cordial. You'd probably have quite a good exchange and a quite, quite a good discussion. But, I mean, genuinely, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy that that's kind of the adversarial nature of it. So what I've now decided on is, is that I'm just not going to engage in those kinds of discussions. If people don't agree with me, that's cool. Switch it off. Um, or I'll just... Not, li not listen, mute, whatever. And I don't have to get involved in any of that discussion anymore. Uh, and Twitter for me is a place to share ideas, share concepts. If people don't like them, I'm just not going to have a discussion with you about it, apart from if you're prepared to come and have a proper dialogue, either virtually or face-to-face. -face. Because for me, that's, that's where I think you can actually genuinely seek understanding. And I, I, I continuously try and invite people with alternative perspectives of mine and say, please come and have a conversation about it. And very rarely do they take me up on the on that, which is in itself, I think, quite indicative. Um, but I, I believe that that's the way forward. So let's use Twitter for what it's really good for, which is the sharing and the articulation of ideas. And if we want to have a conversation, let's not use Twitter for that, because it doesn't really work out. <laughs> Well, well, very good that we have the podcast for doing that to have a, to have a conversation and um, to Indeed. exchanging information. And there, are, fortunately, we still have plenty of conference we can attend to where we really can um, take the communication on a personal level. My my question for you is that you just mentioned that Twitter is not really a place for you where you can allow to have 
personal conversations and where a lot of people with different perspectives and I think uh, well that's totally okay first of all every every perspective is more than welcome and every perspective should be respective uh, should be respected and but my my question for you is that personally when you had conversations with people in person and they had a similar view than you or maybe they even had a different view than you have about how to do the things what have you been taking away from these conversations and have they helped you anyway in uh, developing your coaching um well i mentioned earlier meeting rick shuttleworth and i remember having a quite a heated conversation we were in a professional context because we we're both working in the same realm i'm having quite a heated conversation with him because I wanted to design a kind of coach education model where we had some pretty clear clarity over, you know, the stages that the players might go through and we could give them kind of clarity to say, you know, at this stage, they might see this, you might see that. And I was using a pretty linear approach to, I was creating basically a talent development framework that was linear that then would give coaches guidance. And he said to me, look, no. And I said, well, we've got to give them something. If we don't give them anything, it'll just be chaos. And he said, I'd rather that then give them something really linear that they'll just then use as a script and follow to the letter. And you will lose all of the possible creativity and joy. Now, if I was to have my time again, what, I would have, what, what we then created as a result of that tension was we created a concept in rugby, which they refer to as cards, which stood for creative, adaptable, resilient decision makers who self-organize. And we could use that as a very loose framework to design practice environments and learning environments using that as a reference point. It became a very useful framework, but I didn't have that at the time. So I felt like it was like, what? And I kept getting these queries and I found it really difficult not to give, you know, but it makes total sense now when I think back at it, because, you know, why would you want a sort of non-linear philosophy to coach development, coach education. Sorry, why would you want non-linear philosophy for player development, but then use a really kind of linear curriculum process and also against a very linear education model for the coaches. It just doesn't work, it's incongruent. So um, what I discovered with, so for example, with Rick was that tension and that difficult conversation was extremely valuable because it caused me to have an enormous reappraisal. At the time, I was struggling with it, but it did make me really open my mind and think in a different way. Um, now, what I would say, though, would be just to be totally honest with you, uh, Rick, is I'm um, I'm not brilliant at um, doing that. <laughs> if I've got a flaw, I think it, <laughs> I can sometimes be a little bit too convinced of my own uh, my own beliefs. Uh, and so, actually, what I do is I find genuine value in some of that in, in some of that like alternative perspective. Um, and so I do, I do kind of enjoy those sorts of discussions and, you know, the podcast for a long time, people have accused it of being a bit of an echo chamber, but I genuinely interest, I do interestingly value diversity. I've had a number of people on of late, you know, that aren't exactly directly aligned to my philosophy. They're alternative, you know, putting some alternative perspectives out there, but there's something interesting that we can maybe find. So I, I use this principle now I'm trying to work on it. It's like, I see it as almost like we're, you imagine almost like two judo players and they're sort of trying to wrestle with an idea and they're sort of trying to get position on something there's actually value in the struggle and the tussle where we'll probably find a synthesis between the ideas of where we actually find commonality and that's where the genuine insight is to be found um now some stuff just doesn't really map so i can't really embrace it because 
it's just coming from an entirely different theoretical uh, root base. You know, if you imagine like this, you get the theoretical roots of different ideas and the trees are growing up, right? They don't, they don't blend, they don't match. So you can't really do that. You know, it's just theoretically incongruent. Um, but there might be ideas in practice where the branches are, where the leaves are. There might be some practice ideas that we can use. So I've been exploring recently, you know, you know there are certain practice forms that are associated with, say, information processing approaches like instruction. And like, where is an appropriate use of instruction within an ecological model? And some people would say, well, there's no use for instruction in an ecological model. Of course there is. But it's just about how you're going to adopt it and how you're going to use it. And, and, and you can be mindful about the way that you're using instruction. So the roots might be different. But when you get up to the tree canopy and the, and the branches and the leaves, actually, there's probably a lot more merging that can happen in that, in that space. And you can actually take different ideas and borrow them. Um, so, again, it depends on the way you're looking at the world, the way you're, you know, you're going to approach the world you know, as to whether you're going to find that commonality. And actually, sometimes the commonality is in the practice, not necessarily in the theoretical base. So that's, that's really interesting to me because I, I, I've had a, a couple discussions recently about kind of the, the philosophy that coaches kind of have to find as, as they develop who they are, right? And, and some of the, the common, or one of the common things we talk about a lot in those conversation, conversations is, can um, you, you mentioned earlier about the, the participation numbers, you know, and, and part of your proof that the ecological dynamics is, is working is that you have more and more kids coming back and, and more kids coming. And, you know, my, my question is, is that, is there a, a way for a coach? Like, is there, um, I'm trying to phrase this without kind of saying, or kind of um, sounding, I don't know. But anyway, is there like a, a way for a coach to kind of, let me just ask it in the way that I'm thinking in my head, that would be simpler. Um, yeah. Can a coach be an effective teacher and, and, and increase those numbers and everything like that um, in a kind of linear way? Like, is it, is it more about the, the coach and their attitude and their engagement with the kids rather than what they're doing with the kids? If that makes hundred percent, hundred percent, you can. Yeah, no doubt about that, right? Um, it, 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 in some respects, right? You can use if you're good enough at engagement, and you're good enough at creating a motivational climate that's enthralling and exciting, and you know, and all that sort of stuff. I think you'll get kids coming back for that, and actually let's not lose sight of the fact that actually kids are pretty resilient, you know, and I'll actually put up with an awful lot of hardship. Um, so actually in reality, in reality, um, you know, you, this is what they say that everything works to a degree, right? So this is why, you know, whether you adopt an ecological approach or you, or you adopt a more kind of um, traditional um, information processing style, it can all be done brilliantly. It could also all be done. You could do ecological really badly. You know, um, um, the difficult, the thing with me is the thing the one thing I think about is, is that even if you do ecological really badly, you're less likely to turn people off. You're less likely mm. to do any damage, like proper damage. Whereas I feel if you do like a more directive approach, um, which is more coach led, let's say, because the knowledge is the knowledge and the power is always with the coach predominantly in an IP model because they're a teacher. 
you know, their responsibility is to teach and put information in. Whereas in the ecological approach, you're drawing information out. Now, you might be bad at drawing information out. Um, but uh, if, the, if that doesn't happen, then at least people have had a decent experience. Now, I've also experienced this as well, where some people really like structure, order, and they like to be taught things. That's what they prefer or they perceive to be a valuable experience. So should you say, well, actually, no, you don't know very well. So come over here into my environment because it's a much better environment. Well, probably not. You know, so if you're getting people craving structure, order, drills and everything else, then, you know, you're in a difficult situation, particularly if you don't have that belief system. So in reality, you know, I don't I don't ever have that kind of experience, thankfully. But if I ever did, I'd be, you know, I'd probably just recommend somebody go somewhere else because it's not my thing. Mm. But but having said all that, right, could I, I like, well, could I do, you know, a kind of directive coach led drill-based, technique-led, traditional session, and it still be engaging and fun? Well, I like to think so, because, um, you know, did okay before. I just prefer not to have to make the compromise. <laughs> and I've done it, by the way. I did it as an experiment not long ago. Um, just happened to be a certain, certain circumstance where I was a little bit caught out. And I ended up doing a bit, I thought, oh, that'd be fun. Let's try this then. And I did something very, it just was an absolute, pig's ear of a disaster um it was rubbish um and the kids were dead confused and i was like i felt really bad because <laughs> i had to just wander off now and say, sorry just leave you to it now bye um now so anyway long-winded way of describing this uh, getting around to your question yeah you can of course you can use traditional approach and it'd be really good and really engaging and you get really great numbers absolutely 100 percent um it's not my choice so i just say to people that's i always say this by the way this is my choice you know I've done that. I did that for 20 years. Didn't like it. Now I'm doing something else. I'm finding it much more enjoying, enjoyable and joyful. Um, but yeah, the answer is yes. Well, 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 I think that's that's such an such an important point you just made. That it's how people coach and with which approach with approach they coach. It's their choice, and sure. I think we really need to like value that, and we really need to also that also respect that that if someone is not if someone is coaching in a different way. We need to give the people the autonomy to coach in their own way. I think that's, I think that's that's very very important if we if we think about coaching over. But now you, you compared a lot the um, doing things more in the, well, let's say in a non-linear way versus a linear way. And just my question here is because we we as we said we we talk a lot about these things. And Derek also mentioned that we are in some kind of uh, book club at the moment, but. Well, maybe the question doesn't sound very appropriate for if we think about <laughs> nonlinear pedagogy, but I'm just very curious about your thoughts. Uh, do you do you see any advantage in doing anything in a linear way for player development or for skill development? Uh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> Um, and it's good. It's a good question because it's making me do a uh, making me do a reappraisal here. I'm trying to think, yeah. think a bit through. Yeah. Think it through. So, um, just can I? I'll just take the first part of your of, of what you said before I join 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 into that one. So, the first part about this idea about um, everybody's approach is is valid, and everyone should have the autonomy of choosing their approach. And I, and I do I do actually believe that. You know, I do think that um, 
there are as as outspoken as I am about the ecological approach and how passionate a um, uh, you know advocate I am, um, and also how you will you know genuinely you will definitely have heard me say you know I think this is kind of the way right, and some people get really really unhappy when I say this is the way. So I think it's the, I've never said it's the only way because there are lots of ways, but for me, it's the way. Um, And I genuinely believe more coaches would derive more enjoyment from coaching if they embrace some of these ideas, you know? So I think, I think if you want to stick with what you know, that's fine. I, I think it's impoverished. I do. I think embracing some of these other ideas definitely of value. And I think it also has knock on benefits to the, to the athlete. So I would definitely say that from the outset. I have a preference. Um, I, I also think it depends on your um, kind of like your ontological perspective. You know, wh- how do you see the world? Um, and, you know, I, I see the world as a, as a, you know, kind of a rich tapestry of experiences that we can draw from. I, I and, you know, but if you see the world more through a, if, if your ontological position is more that, you know, that there are individuals who, who need to be taught stuff and if they don't get taught stuff, then they can't progress in the world. Um, you know, I, I think this applies, by the way, to education um, and where you are, you know, very, very well lauded for its education system, um, uh, seen as one of the best in the world. And, um, you know, we, we, I think, have some very impoverished education systems and there's a number of thinkers who would articulate something similar, particularly if we're in the business and we're interested in the development of creativity. I think we've got some education systems that are really saying that there are these things that are important and if you don't you know good at those ideas that those things then you unfortunately are considered to be not very clever in a classical education sense and i do believe education needs a radical transformation i do genuinely believe that but but if you ontologically think that education has genuine value and there are these core principles that need to be applied then that's exactly where you're going to go from right so that's the way you see the world then a linear approach definitely maps on right and you would be ridiculous not to adopt that as an approach, right? Because, you know, if you, if you, you know, and there are people I've spoken to, they're very reductionist in their thinking. You know, they think of it in, in the sense of, you know, they, they, they're trying to apply uh, principles of thermodynamics to the idea of human interaction. Right? I just see human interaction and human, in, and human learning as being a very complex thing. I think it's, it's a very dynamic thing. It's obviously humans over, over millions of years have, evolve to adapt to their environments and to learn and to discover and to problem solve. And it's just what we're made to do. It's kind of baked into the DNA. It's what's been absolutely central to our survival. And I think there are lots of things to be learned from indigenous populations around sense making and wayfinding and discovery and exploration and learning as we go together and solving problems together, which is very, very natural to the human experience that since we've become a kind of industrialized, mechanized society, we've sort of lost sight of. So I believe this brings us back to our natural learning roots. Um, so um, in, in answer to the question, can anything be done in a linear way? Um, well, I think, I think probably, yes. Um, uh, I, I don't quite know. Well, yeah, I mean, in fact, no, sorry. Almost certainly is actually the right answer to this question. Almost certainly. Now, it begs an an interesting question, which is just because it can be done in a linear way doesn't mean it has to be. I often I sometimes find myself as a coach reverting to what you could call a semi linear approach. And um, and why? Well, I can't think of 
the ecological way to do it in the moment. Or I haven't got yet the, uh, the lived experience of working ecologically to be able to draw upon. And I'm sure if I, was, if I had somebody watching me or as someone I could talk to afterwards and say, I had this problem, I didn't know how to solve it ecologically, they could say, well, you could just do this. And I go, oh, yeah, of course. But at the time, you know, you're in the moment, you don't. So I, I might revert to something that's a little bit more linear. I might even use perhaps, uh, you know, kind of direct instruction probably a little bit too liberally from time to time because constraints. And, and so that's one. The other one is, I think, in particular forms of life, I think the linear approach is probably appropriate. Um, you know, for example, if you're very constrained by time or you're constrained by the need to perform quickly and to get groups performing quickly because your job depends on it or whatever, then probably you do need a bit more of a linear approach because there's one thing about linear approach is it's fast. It is quicker than an ecological approach. It doesn't have to be, but it generally is. The ecological approach, I think, is deeper. You get, you get a, a richer learning experience, a deeper learning, a more meaningful learning experience, um, but it can take longer depending on how you design the environment. Um, linear approach is, quick, is quicker, but I, I believe it's more fragile. I believe it's, it doesn't go as deep. So... You can teach somebody something, but then immediately then you, you create alternative dynamics. Don't expect that to stick. Don't expect it to be robust, sorry, or to be resilient. It's, it's likely to break under pressure. So recognize and understand that that linear approach might be an approach that's got value, but it might also lead to things that don't necessarily, um, uh, you know, stack up. It, it stands to reason, you know, in a linear approach you are designing something and you're teaching somebody something that is you're, you're deciding is going to be useful for them. That's mm. fine. As long as you then explore it in a range of different contexts, ecological approach, you're exploring it in the context anyway. So actually it's an emergent property that's coming from that contextual dynamics. So it, it, it can't be anything but resilience because it's been built by that individual. Anyway, I could go on forever about this. So oh, the answer is very interesting. Go on. <laughs> No, no, go on. I just said it's very interesting. Go on. Oh, um, it, well, it's only because I, um, I feel like um, uh, there's a number of sort of assumptions that sort of exist with like sort of what you might call the linear or nonlinear approaches. Um, and I think some of those assumptions, uh, I, don't, I don't quite know if people quite get that. So, for example, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the ecological approach is. Some people think an, eco an ecological approach is literally just pure self-organization. So you just literally leave people to it and they just magically become skillful. It's not that. And that's why we have the CLA. Because the CLA gives us the opportunity to be really quite targeted. I was just talking actually just before we started recording with Andrea Henrik, who he talked about that. Actually, you can, you can constrain really tightly and there's still loads of freedom and creativity about how you solve the problem, even in a tight constraint. It doesn't have to be wide open all the time. And people don't get that. Um, they just think it's always wide open. And like, they can't get why people would just sort of self-organize. They can't understand why people would get. Well, sometimes you constrain really tightly to actually constrain people's perception. So they're attuning to a particular aspect. You do it very deliberately. Um, but so what people sometimes think is instead of doing that, because they don't understand how you go about doing that, they just go straight to teach. And, and that's okay. That's fine. But you don't have to do it that way. So I would always say for any time there is a linear approach, there's a nonlinear way as well that would probably deliver the same outcome. And it would probably be quicker, but it would have much more of the individual capability baked into it. 
And that's really a big misunderstanding about the this the ecological perception. The ecological perspective is more of a way of looking at how humans learn. And there's a range of possibilities within that. But some people map onto method in, in the constraints approach, or they map onto what they've seen, or they think they see that, and they think, oh yeah, well, it's that and that doesn't work. You've got to use, you've got to have a bit of both. You don't have to have a bit of both. Within an ecological conception of how humans learn, you don't have to dip in and out. They're, 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 you just don't have to. People think, and people think when you say that, that you're you're impoverishing a coach's repertoire in their toolbox. No, it's just whenever someone says you need a bit of both, they just don't understand the pure application, the application of the ecological approach properly enough. Well, it's that's very interesting because that <laughs> that leads to my next question. And before I'm asking that, I just found it very um, fascinating how you were phrasing it that you can constrain things very tightly because uh, I've made the same experience. If you really think about something, if you really want to force a sequence or first force uh, an action of athletes i think it's definitely po possible to constrain them very tightly but my next question is for you now you you know you really spread out the whole topic and you gave a really good overview about what this is all about here and what we're actually talking about so that's very good and very useful i think my next question for you is that now we're talking also in our school a lot and i really love to learn this topic is deliberate practice and one feature about deliberate practice is that you need to get, get a lot of repetitions and that's very often connected with isolated repetitions. And then we have the nonlinear pedagogy or constraints-led approach, call it however you want, which says that get repetitions without repetitions. And most of the time, these are the, this is very conflicting. So how do you see the role of deliberate practice where it says, or oh, you need repetitions? And how do you see the role of nonlinear pedagogy and constraints-led approach, which says that where one of the most important underpinnings is that get repetitions without repetitions. So the first thing we have to do is to understand domain specificity. So a lot of the deliberate practice research was done in a non-sporting environment. So for example, music. Um, and um, within that context, the idea of deliberate practice was the idea of kind of like isolated practice of, you know, perfecting particular actions that produce you know, musical mastery. Um, and the association is, or was, that more of that kind of deliberate practice was the key. Now, the one thing I want to say about deliberate practice that people soon lose sight of is it's not just a numbers game. Um, we know this now, don't we, that it's not just a at number of hours that you do that learns mastery it's actually practice practice quality matters more than practice quantity mm -hmm. um and we've also discovered through work like um that hambrick's done and the likes and um, brooke mcnamara that um you know that actually deliberate practice doesn't probably account for quite as much uh, as perhaps Ericsson originally thought. I mean, he made a fantastic contribution to the, to the, to the field. Mm. So let's not lose sight of that. Yeah, um, I still love it. I still love the research of that field. So. Yeah, me too. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. And we've got so much mm. more to learn. But in the sporting context, when you take into account a range of different domains, it certainly doesn't necessarily translate as hard as it does in some of these other more naturally isolated domains. So... And I think this is where sometimes transferability between learning paradigms from certain domain to another domain isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily as work. So in a dynamic and fluid game like ice hockey, um, 
or field hockey, the dynamics are, are, what, are, are the important thing. The fluidity is the important thing. And actually, if you want to get repetitions of anything, you want to get repetitions of a dynamic fluid environment because by getting repetitions of a dynamic and fluid environment, you start to understand more about the dynamic and fluid environment. It has never, ever made sense to me that why you would take a game like ours and reduce it down to just movements and then assume that those movements are then going to somehow miraculously transform into skilled performance. Just, just does not make any logical sense to me whatsoever. But lots and lots of people would, would say, this is the process, this is the structure. So I think often we're using these impoverished learning experiences, impoverished learning environments, and thinking that that's going to will, build, build. Now, the, rest, the rationale people have is, if you don't get learn the basics and the fundamentals and the movement, then you can't translate. And they see that's like the ABCs, the alphabet. Then you, you can't learn to read if you don't understand the ABCs. And they map on these purely cognitive domains to a physical space. The physical space we have has just got so much complexity, so much stuff. You just, you just got to have time experiencing that, you know, because if you don't have time experiencing that, then, you know, you, how do you start to understand some of those, you know, those moments of, you know, the kind of the, the compression of time and space and experience it, you know, I mean, that's like just intuitively understanding that. And then knowing that when the space compresses or opens or, you're, you're online, right? You're engaged, you're, dis you're connected to it um, and you're, you're kind of immersed in it and you, you start to begin to attune to the way time and space compresses and moves and, and you use the time and space and you become really aware of your surroundings and you're able to utilize what's around you. Um, that's, that's, that's what you've got to learn, right? So that, that is deliberate practice for us, right? Because it has to have, that representativeness without the representativeness it's not deliberate and then of course having somebody there as well one of the key elements the key tenets of deliberate practice in in um is that it's you know it's it's goal specific domain specific he even says it's domain specific um and you've got somebody there who you can get feedback from um now so for me, if we understand with deliberate practice that it's not just about quantity, it's about quality, but it does take quantity too, right? Because nobody just gets good straight away. Um, then therefore, we need both quality and quantity. So what does quality in our context look like? Well, the perspective from the ecological sense is to say, well, actually, as representative as possible. That's important. That's an important phrase. As representative as possible given the constraints of the situation, given the athlete capabilities. You can't be always be fully representative, too much chaos. Sometimes you have to reduce it down, but you've got to maintain representativeness as much as you can. So you're, you're basically playing with a sweet spot of variability constantly. You know, how, much, how much variability should there be in the, in the space? You know, dial it up, dial it down, get it right, just get, get, get the sweet spot, you know, the Goldilocks rule, if you like. Um, and we're going we're gonna to play with that space to get, maximum enrichment from the athletes. Now you get too, you get too narrow, too constrained. Sometimes you lose the, re the representativeness. You, know, you open it up, you've got too many affordances. You know? So you're always playing with the idea, are we constraining to afford? Are we constraining to constrain? You've got all these different dynamics at play. But to speak to specifically um, deliberate practice, in our context, we have to be domain specific and we have to, it has to be relevant to our stuff. So if, if you want something that's deliberate, it's deliberate practice for me. It has to be 
some, there have to be core important elements of the game present and there have to be information sources present. Otherwise, you can't be practicing deliberately. You're doing something, right? You're, you're doing some kind of movement pattern or something relate, you know, that, that might resemble it, but it's not deliberate. It's not rich enough. hasn't got the dimensions that you need. That's how I'd articulate that, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think, I mean, that's something we've talked about in school and, and, and in the, um, the show a lot is this idea of deliberate practice and, and how we can kind of take that into to our environment, right? And um, we were lucky enough to just, we spoke to Jean Cote last, last week who, who did the development model sports participation. And he, he was saying like, it, you know, it's the, the adding it progressively, right? Like you can, you can add that in more and more as the athletes develop and, and as practice becomes more essential and as that motivation and that drive is already kind of established, right? And they, they want to be in that sport for um, performance kind of thing. And, but I think that that adds a whole new element there to what you just said, right? Like there's so much um, kind of almost confusing around what deliberate practice is in our, in our space. And that, that really cleared it up in my head that you have to have that, that representativeness. You have to have um, people there to, to make the player make decisions, right? That you have to activate the, the perception act and coupling everything like that. Right. And, and that, I don't know, I'm rambling now, but that really cleared it up in my, in my head because so many times you see kids going around a cone or doing uh, um, we do skating is a, a big skill in our sport that is, practice in this isolated way and um it, it you see it so often where they they simply just isolate a specific piece of a movement not even a, a continuous movement or a complete movement and it's it's just it's it just so much more clear in my head now so thanks for that but um, I, I should i should yeah. i should say i should say sorry uh Derek, before you jump on that i probably should say that the bit i don't particularly think maps on very well is, is the word deliberate because mm. it has a it has this sort of pre -con, preconceived notion almost um and so uh you know jean Cote's idea of deliberate play probably maps closer um mm. but i don't i've always struggled with the concept of play being in any way deliberate um yeah. and so i find that sort of challenging so i've played around with some like ideas like I, there's a term i tend to use like playperation um, which is the idea of kind of marrying play with preparation for performance somehow. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an unfinished concept, really. Um, and then, you know, I've, I've used things like, you know, kind of serious play and things like that, you know, that sort of idea. But, but anyway, so I just wanted to just say that, you know, I do think we probably, I, I, the deliberate bit's always been slight, I mean, slightly uncomfortable about. Yeah. So if I've got an alternative, it's something like preparation. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause there's so many, there is so many terms. I think that's where part of the, the confusion comes from, right? It's like so many, so many different ways to, to almost call the same thing, but each one has a little piece that's, that's missing. And I, I really like the way that he put it. it. He, he put it as kind of like this continuum where on, on one side you have deliberate play, which is just go out, you know, and play street hockey or whatever. And then on the far other side, you have the deliberate practice, which is breaking down to an isolated thing. And then, um, right on that um i forget what side the, the the deliberate play side you have the the ecological dynamics nlp and, and cla where it's almost deliberate play but you have that that 
constraints. You have the coach, you have the, um, you just make it a little bit more towards kind of deliberate, if you will. On a, yeah. I know you just said yeah, you don't yeah. like that term. but Yeah, so it's like, um, it's not quite, so deliberate play is not quite free play. Mm. You know, like un- unencumbered play, it's, there's a little bit more to it. Like you say, there's something that's kind of got a bit more um, added stuff. Yeah, with you. yeah, yeah. But it's really, it's really interesting. Um, it, it, it's, it's really interesting. This whole field of of skill development and and just all of the things that go into it, and and really like, it, it's always interesting me to, to for me to to go back to the thing like, like if you just put a, a kid into an environment versus where they have to go around cones or if they have to play three on three um, cross ice is a popular game for ice hockey, right? Then which environment are they one going to go to on their own? And then two, which one are they going to come out and actually like just be able to learn something just by, by being in that environment. Um, and I think it, it depends a lot on the learner as well. Like I can, I, I've met a few kids that, that really like that, structure and really because that's what they're used to right that's really what they've grown up with so that's been an interesting piece as well um i, I kind of want to switch gears here because there's there's something i've always wanted to ask you in a way um you you talk to a lot of experts in the field of sports i would say and, and a lot of people doing a lot of cool projects a lot of really interesting research and stuff like that um what what is the most exciting thing for you in coaching, you know, recently? Like what's, what's new, like what, what's something that you've heard of that, that gets you excited and really you want to go out and try it or you want to go out and learn more about it or just anything like that that you've heard about recently? Mm. One of the, one of the things that I suppose, um, I'm still exploring and I'm still really enjoying exploring and still playing around with is uh, some of the research that's emerging around video game design. So uh, Amy Price, who is on the show, uh, works for the FA now and some of her ideas around video game design. I don't, I don't quite map onto some of the theoretical positioning of where she's placed, uh, you know, kind of the underpinning ideas of, video game design but the principles are really exciting and really interesting and you know I've been a I watch you know my son he's 13 like a lot of 13 year olds he's a gamer and he likes to play and all that sort of stuff and and I've watched him and actually through this process you know we've got quite involved in I've played played with him a few times we've played a few different types of games and Madden and various others and he um and you watch him just very naturally just come to a game, understand it very quickly, start to understand how different things combine to make different actions and movements and solve problems and how absorb, absorbed he can. Also, how how he interacts with his, because everything's done, it's not just him, he doesn't particularly like to play on his own, he's always got a friend who's online somewhere with him. And they are, honestly, the noise is emerging from his bedroom, he's shrieking and hollering and they're laughing and they're joking and they're you know and and it's it's on lots of levels it's kind of like it's the modern day equivalent of what I used to do when I used to go out and play with my friends like it's not necessarily Mm. always available to them now so he's doing the same thing right but he's free he's got an opportunity to be creative they're solving problems together there's tension there's conflict um 
you know, uh, but there's also moments of genuine joy. There's, um, there's creativity, ingenuity, innovation, uh, problem solving. And it's all the things that um, we've spent an awful long time in the world of sport, like basically stripping out. Mm. Don't want to get, don't want to have any creativity and problem solving. No, no, no. Don't want to have any fun. Don't want to allow enjoyment and creativity, you know, and and uh, and, and spark innovation. They don't want athletes to be coming up with their own ways of doing things. No, no, no. They've got to do it the way we know because we know better because we're the knowers, we're the knowledgeable ones. Mm. Um, and so, I that video game ideas. There's the ideas behind video games, the principles, the concepts. You know, video game designers know pretty quickly that unless they get that kind of challenge point right, um, and you know, it's easy enough to get into quickly and make rapid progress, but but not so easy that it's boring really quickly. But it can't be too challenging either and too hard to gain gain access to because otherwise, you know, what's the point? So we've got to design environments like that. And if we don't design environments like that, well, don't be surprised if kids just get turned off by sport pretty quick. Mm. Our challenge is those of us involved in sport, right? We're not we're not battling with each other. I don't honestly give a monkey's which organ which model of coaching you decide to use as long as you can accurately say that you're getting kids involved in a way that that is as engaging as the, the video game because otherwise we're all losing them to that because they're better at it they make it addictive deliberately and they're better at it than us so we've got to learn from them and we've got to get damn good at it damn quick otherwise we're going to be left behind because there's going to be no one left to coach yeah yeah, that's really interesting. I, I have to make a quick comment here, and then I think Rick has a, a final question for you for the, for the episode. But, um, well, two comments, actually. The first one is I kind of have a, a theory about the video games where I'm, uh, at least in the States, you're starting to see more video game coaches. And I think um, quite rapidly, there might be a shift to where video games become the new kind of sports and they start to lose their participation yeah. as more parents see a, a future um, for their kid yeah. and that and then sports become and going outside and playing with your friends becomes that way to escape once again um yeah and it'll just keep cycling back and forth there and then um i i have to say i'm really interested in that um that idea as well that amy price episode you did a, a few years ago was was really interesting to me that was right i had just started my computer science degree um and i was thinking of all these different ways to um combine computer science and, and coaching and, and that was a, a good time for me to listen to that one, but it was, um, it led to some really interesting ideas that um, I don't know if I wasn't um, patient enough with them or not, but some of them kind of flopped, but I want to try them again someday. So, um, but yeah, uh, Rick, what's the, the final question we got for Stuart? Well, first of all, I, I think this has been a very interesting conversation and very interesting approach and very interesting process overall. And I think we touched on, a lot of different areas and I think uh, there are a lot of still well I think it's always good if you leave the call with more questions than answers so that's always <laughs> like the the best thing well then you really know that you get something out of it um, and my my question is because I well I don't know how many kilometers coaching kilometers you have on your radar already but I guess it's quite a few meanwhile and but I would like to know that how do how do you see the role of a coach being overall um, good point. Well, I, I really like this notion of a sense maker or a wayfinder. This is, this is a, 
an idea that I've been exploring within as a as a kind of cohort of uh, what what we call ecological explorers who share ideas. And Carl Woods shared with me the notion of wayfinding, you know, which comes from indigenous populations and um, anthropology. And there's a particular um, thinker around this called Tim Ingold, who I've uh, just started to kind of like learn more of and kind of discover some of his lectures and ideas. And um, uh, he, and, and this notion of a wayfinder is this idea of, like, instead of us having to be knowledgeable and being the knower of things and therefore transmitting knowledge and the, the individual being the recipient of that knowledge, um, what we're interested in is we're interested in um, what we can discover as we move forward and then what we can use around us to help us solve the problem. And then the wayfinder or the sense maker is just opening up different perspectives for the, for the athlete so that they might know where to look because they might not naturally know where to look because mm. to them it's just jungle and chaos. So rather than showing them what to do, we might just help them know where to look. And we might even refine where to look to help them with that. So for me, that's that's a much more natural way. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that you have to be like that all the time. Um, I think there's room to slide uh, along the continuum. So if you take sense maker at one end of the continuum and say teacher or instructor at the other end of the continuum, you know, one's putting knowledge in, one's trying to draw knowledge out. I think you can slide in that in that continuum. You know, so you can sometimes be the instructor because it requires you to. The moment does. The notion, the idea, the the environment requires you to. The athlete requires you to. Um, but when I'm instructing in general, I'm not necessarily instructing about what to do. I'm instructing about where to look, or I might be instructing about uh, drawing attention to information that might be present in the environment, search space, narrowing the search space using an instruction. It's an ecological approach to using instructions, narrowing the search base, using a verbal instruction. I can use a, a question. I've become so conditioned to using questions that I find it hard to use instructions, actually. Uh, so I normally, even if I want to give an instruction, I'll frame it as a question somehow, even if it's just through intonation. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I can't help it. But um, uh, in, yeah, you can, you know. So um, again, this comes from the perspective of, who do we want the who do we want to be at the center of the learning process you know and if the athlete is the learner and all we are is a guide of their learning then i think some interesting things can emerge um and i'm constantly surprised by the way at what does emerge and fascinated joyful and when you see those moments of epiphany for an athlete when they find something they're like, they want to show you, like they picked up a little bar of gold or something. Look at me, look at me, look what I did. And I'm like, well, I know, isn't that great? It's there. It's so powerful. Yeah. I just, I'm a, I've got to be honest, I'm a bit addicted to it. So can't let go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's a great final thought to, to end on for today. So Stuart, I have to say, this has been an absolute highlight of the podcast for me. It's been great to, to get to know you and, and, and chat with you today. So thanks very much for your time. And and joining us and, and just, yeah, I mean, it was a great conversation and I had a lot of fun. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me and um, for uh, indulging me in a little experiment of uh, slightly more emergent approach and, um, and being able to sort of put this out on 
both of our channels and I wish you all the well and all the best in this project and um, I will try not to dwell on the fantastic learning experience that you're both having uh, too much uh, as I continue to struggle through my uh, my learning experiences. I've created my own community so I kind of feel like I'm getting the same experience but um, yeah uh, you know you but anyway there we go it's all it's all good. Well you're welcome you're welcome in the middle of the forest you just have to find out where we are and, and join us <laughs> so uh, it sounds yeah. it sounds enjoyable all right thanks so uh, a really good chance to talk with Stuart armstrong and once again from the the talent equation podcast in the uk um and just chat with him about kind of a bunch of different stuff really and and I, I i really enjoyed the directions that we took in this conversation and um to start off our reflection here at the end i wanted to talk about just kind of his takeaways from his show so far that that he's had and um the one i want to highlight here is just the the learning things from other sports um he's had a, a variety of guests on his show um from all different angles of, of coaching and all different sports of coaching and just everything to do with the field. And um, he, he really brings on a, a vast number of different sports and, and learns from them and asks them questions and then ask them and they talk about how it can be applied to other sports and stuff like that. And I think that's such a powerful tool to have as a coach, to be able to take something from this sport over here to, and then apply it into your sport over here. And I think that's something that we talk a lot about here in our program and um, the, the, uh, the episode we had with Yuha Vori about invasion sports and the principles and what we can take away from, from this and that. But it's a, it's a very valuable tool if you can look at something someone's doing in, say, gymnastics and, and be able to apply it into to hockey, whether it's, you know, something to do with the athletes or just how they're coaching or anything like that. I, and I think it's just an incredible tool that you can have as a coach. Uh, I think also just came to my mind when you said that actually that Stuart was capable of learning uh, so many things from different sports. As you said, they also right away in my mind came the episode we had we had with Juha Vori and also Juha himself, because as we said several times, uh, or and as we said in the episode with him, he has been our instructor for me in when I was in my first year and then my second year. You had him, uh, but all, all for me, I was only in my first year when you were in your first year. He was not teaching anymore, but he was still around the program, and I think. Also that he has been highlighting so often the things when we talked with him about the objectives of invasion games and the game situation rules that we can teach these concepts in every invasion game. And I think that's that's something very valuable. And I think that's something we really need to understand as sports coaches, especially when 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 we want to develop players that we can if even if we we both are hockey coaches, we can play handball and if we if we if we play handball outside then we can teach them concepts of how they actually can defend because there's a lot of there's there's a lot of defending happening and it's there's a lot of one against one so that's that's a really good tool and I think also overall I think this is something I'm I'm really hoping for in the future that we are also capable uh, to bring other people from other sports also on uh, I think that would be really cool also for us to talk um, to other other sports people and what they have learned and how do they coach and what do they apply and I think this is something something very valuable about uh, the show Stuart has because if you if you check the guests here is on there's no like there's no consistency in a way that 
he's talking about the same topic, uh, about the same sport all the time. He's really talking. He can. He's talking about tennis, then about football, and then maybe about rugby, and then also about his own sport. So there are so many different things and so many different areas. And then he's still always throwing the in. If I if I am right, um, you can correct me because you listen to him much more. Uh, there are also always aspects of the ecological dynamics in his, in his episodes and constraints that approach and non-linear pedagogy. So it's it's a very it's it's a very valuable podcast and valuable show. Yeah, for sure, and I, I can't recommend it enough. There's a lot of great things to learn from from his guests and from himself. And you know, the the second part of the conversation that we had with him today is um, I, I asked him what's a, a way that, that young coaches can kind of bring new ideas to the table and stuff like that and, and, and kind of push for this ecological dynamics or NLP or anything like that. And, you know, he, he, he framed it in a, a really good way. Um, and it's, it's to give, give those around you as coaches a, a safe space to explore those concepts for themselves. And I think that's a, a really interesting point. And I, I mentioned it in the episode itself, but, you know, we want to do the same things with our athletes. We want to give them safe space to, to explore different techniques, explore different movements, uh, different solutions. And, and, and we don't want to take that safety away and, and kind of have them tighten up or anything like that. We want to continue to give them just as many opportunities and support them as we can. And I think that's, that translates into coaching and coach education as well. You don't want to, uh, do it differently and and take that safety away from the coaches. You still want them to be able to explore for their own, um, give them little suggestions, ask them good questions and stuff like that. But you want to create that overall safe space for those coaches that they can go out and explore those concepts for themselves. Uh, I think that's a, a really important takeaway from today's conversation because it can be applied both to your athletes and to the coaches that you're working with. Yeah, I think for me the the other takeaway is that overall when we when we when we when 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 I asked him about is it actually efficient to do things in a linear way and he said overall that well first of all he thinks that you can do things in a linear way and it has shown that uh, players develop in a linear way but overall it's not it's not very representativeness and overall the it's not very dynamic developing in a linear way and he mentioned also that it's it's possible. For sure, and players, players have been developing in a linear way, and athletes have been developing in a linear way. But at the same time, um, maybe on the other side is that uh, the, the the big reason why the other approach, the nonlinear approach, is maybe not used so often or all over the world, and on the, or not so often applied in the sports coaching context, is that because it just takes a lot of time, and you don't you do not see results immediately. So it's really, but it's really focusing on. On, on long-term athlete development and on the really emphasizing the long-term process. And I think that's it's good that he, he has been highlighting that both ways work, but at the end of the day, you need to really think about what is the what is the best for your athletes. And I think also you need to you need to think about that uh, overall that how do you how do you want to approach them player development and how do you want to what kind of environment do you want to provide them? Do you want to provide them an environment where they where they have all the time the the same same repetitions over there's there's um, there's a little bit variability where they really get these repetitions without repetitions and I think we talked about that as well with Stuart in the episode and I think it's just he he really he really um, he really hit the hammer there basically with his with his comparison because 
again, as you said, that both ways work, but at the end of the day, what is what what is better for the also for the cognitive development and for the decision making and all the things we also talk all the time on the show. Yeah, for sure. And I think the the most important piece that you said there was right at the beginning of that part of the conversation. It's you can use it and it's useful, but um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I, I think that's that was um, really, I think, an important piece because it, it's useful to, to teach something quicker, but as he put it, um, ecological dynamics and, and NLP and all that, um, it, it's much deeper and it's much better learning um, overall. And, and I think that's, that's kind of, you mentioned it as well, that's kind of the, the issue with the implementation for a lot of coaches is just how long it takes. But, you know, if you do it and you're patient with it and you, and you do it in the right way, uh, you, you, I think you create a, a much deeper um, athlete that has a lot more game sense and, and is much much more capable of making decisions and and, and really playing the game and as as kind of should be in my opinion. But you know the other thing there too is that you know you can use the constraints um, pretty tightly, you know, and, and still give the athlete freedom to to kind of figure out the solutions on their own and everything like that. You don't have to go into this full linear um, approach and he kind of mentioned it as a, a semi-linear approach which I, I really liked because you know you can you can start to constrain the athlete pretty tightly but still leave them some space to explore it for themselves and and have that kind of um, freedom and, and everything like that so I I really like that and then the 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 last thing for me was um, just kind of the the role of a coach as he sees it and we we asked this question to to pretty much every guest but um or at least for the coaches road episodes but we asked it for him because he he provided a really interesting answer as this kind of um sense maker or wayfinder i think are the two terms that he used and and um i think that's a, a common theme on our show is is coaches showing them um you know, rather than showing them what to do, you kind of, you kind of show them where to look. I think that's a common theme, but I really like this kind of continuum that he put it on. And on the left, it's the drawing the info out. And on the right, it's the the putting the info in and, and you kind of slide back and forth and back and forth on that continuum as needed. But um, as much as you can, you want to be drawing the info out of the athlete. Um, I think that was a, a really interesting perspective to put in what the role of the, the coach actually is in his eyes. I, I like that. Yeah, I think also what I find so interesting about that question is that overall about the questions we ask the majority about the coaches' role people, but sometimes we're also asking about the episode we have for coaches' role, uh, but sometimes we also ask these questions here in this regular episode. I said, actually, everyone um, has always a different answer. And what, 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 I'm, what I'm, where I want to get with that is that it just shows that how much actually coaches and people think about their role and about their responsibilities and how do they how do they want to how do they want to develop players and how do how do they want to communicate with them and how do they want to approach everything and i think it just as i said it just shows that how much thinking how much thinking they do and how much coaching is connected with thinking because you really need to think about what do you want to do how do you do it and most importantly why why you're doing it again? Simon Sinek here, the Golden Circle is uh, one of the most most essential things, and I think at the end of the day, every every coach should should find his own way or his own approach and his own definition of being a role of the coach. Of course, you can 
what what we do here as well it's that you can you can get inspired by different ideas but at the end of the day it's very interesting to see that even though you listen to these shows and read all these articles and books but at the end of the day it's it's really interesting how do you put all this information together and how do you use them for yourself and how do you develop your own own why your own core values your own coaching philosophy and your own own ideology your own vision everything around that yeah for sure and i think that's in our, our show description as well it's it's just providing coaches another another way to kind of find inspiration and find direction on their on their road but ultimately it's it's up to the coaches to figure out where that destination is so um i think that's a a good place to end it for today make sure you go out and um, go and check out Stuart's podcast the talent equation podcast um this episode is also being released on there it's part of our simulcast with him um and check out him his twitter page uh he posts a lot of updates and, and stuff like that and and uh, it's always interesting stuff coming out of there and then uh, that, that information will be in the, the show notes. And then also check out our social media, The Coaches Road. Um, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And other than that, um, have a nice week. And we will see you guys on Thursday for our next Coaches Road episode. Thanks. Thanks.